One area that David and I have been really curious about is healthcare and how it's being transformed by AI and automation. We're also very keen to see the effects of automation on companies' abilities to offer their customers services instead of product offerings. So, when we got a message from Deceiver, a service designer working at Philips Healthcare, we were very keen to arrange a call with her to learn more about her work to improve care and provide better value. We also want to know how it is to work with service design from inside of a large company such as Philips. You are listening to Designing the Robot Revolution. Enjoy. I'm Dee Siever. I'm a senior service designer and senior experience lead at Philips Health Technology Company. I've been there about six years. Um, I am a formally trained industrial designer, but I always say I worked in feet rather than inches. So I did a lot of trade shows, exhibits, um, spatial environment development. And then um, ultimately went back to grad school for a master's in service design. Um, And from there have been practicing as a service designer for now over seven years, which makes me feel bizarrely old, but uh, has given me some interesting perspective in the meantime. Um, And with Philips these days, I'm primarily working with internal ventures that are transitioning from product sales to service-based business models. In your space, when you hear the word robot, what what do you think of? Um, I think for the most part for us, robot, I mean, so we have at Philips, we have actual robots as far as like doing surgery, you know, so as a surgeon, you can use um, robotics to complete a surgery. So, so that's sort of the obvious place where robotics shows up in our space. Um, Particularly for me as a service designer, where I think of robotics is much more in the process automation. How do we really take some of these human driven processes that are inconsistent, suffer from a lot of errors, are really heavy lifts, and how do we start to automate some of those processes? Um, I think the other thing is, because we also come from a manufacturing space, when I think of robotics, I do start to really think about supply chain and, and how does our logistics business look five years from now because our logistics impact our ability to support customers. And as a global conglomerate that has manufacturing in a lot of different places that has felt supply chain issues over the past two years, you know, there's some real questions there that I think are really interesting for then on the robotic side, how potentially do we think about services of logistics and even kind of our own customers' logistics? And is there an automation space that we really want to put in there? Um, So I think we could think about robotics really in the traditional sense. If there's a robot doing something for a human, we certainly have those kind of things that we're working on and interested in and already out in the market. But for me in the service design side, I'm really thinking about the process automation piece and the many different places that shows up from our internal processes to our service delivery processes to spaces that we can play in customers' processes. Hmm. And and when you joined Philips, Sort of was that the, the the thing you started on, or what? 
It, it was. It's taken an interesting journey. Um, but at the time that I joined, um, Phillips had this organization that was um, called the Digital Accelerator. And they were really trying to take their kind of Internet of Things devices, you know, where they were starting to add some kind of application as a part of uh, the device and accelerate bringing those propositions to market. Um, and in many cases, what they were finding is that there's a particular business model then that would go with that. So you, if you were doing a subscription or a pay-per-use or you know some other kind of transactional fee, and um, in making uh, or kind of in that group, they were also early to recognize that when you start moving to that, the journey of a customer and the journey of a provider really starts to change. And so. Um, early place where they were hiring service designers to then actually support the teams that were going through this this accelerator. Um, as I said, it's it's transition or you know what that accelerator org has looked like has changed quite a bit <laughs> over six years, and it's not something that I'm specifically connected to now. Mm-hmm. Um, but through then my experiences of having worked with a lot of those product service teams have kind of ended up in this nice space of as a technology company that is moving towards solutions, have a lot of domain expertise in that and tend to, to be a go-to person and how do we think about new customer journeys and new delivery journeys. So how, what would you say is this sort of, when, when you moved into that space of, of and it's, to me, it's, it's, it's a complex environment <laughs> you've put yourself into. It's <laughs> the, the intersection of IoT and and healthcare isn't necessarily the easiest context I've ever heard about. Yeah, I, I mean, so for me, I am I'm really nerdy around operations. Like I I always say, if I hadn't become a designer, I would have become a mathematician. Of just like my brain is this very kind of structured mechanism. So for me, kind of coming into this space, that idea of how do you like operate, you know, in that a connected device is part of an ecosystem and is part of a workflow is really just how my brain thinks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I am fascinated by the layers and sort of how things really deep into the operations of an organization, the way people do things ultimately kind of ladders up to how do they use something and what way does a device or an application kind of play into that. Talked about facilitating workshops, Mm. but then you also said workflow. Yeah. So how do you as a service designer in your own complex surrounding facilitate more than just the workshops workflow i think speaks directly to a, a service design is connecting multiple touch points over time front stage to backstage and so a workflow by definition is multiple touch points over time so to be able to say well well what is a user's workflow they're going to have an ecosystem they're going to have you know so like we um I I work a lot with like CIOs of health systems. Well, you know, they're talking to the IT department. They're talking to the nursing department because they're, you know, having to think about what are clinical needs. They're working with the financial side because there's probably some procurement they're doing. So if we're talking about a CIO that from Philip's perspective is trying to make choices about uh, a 
a, techn a technology service, how does clinical come into that? How does procurement come into that? And that's the workflow question. And so what are the interactions that that customer is having or that audience maybe is having as part of, is it daily? Is it monthly? Are they doing it quarterly? Um, and then that starts to say, well, okay, so if we're going to provide, you know, let's say a dashboard to them, what does that really look like? Are, like, are you telling me that as part of their workflow, they're going to be pulling up a dashboard sitting at their desk every day? Probably not. So then is it as part of their workflow? Well, what if we think about text message alerts? Or what if we think about it as part of a uh, quarterly billing statement? You know, there's a, there's a lot of ways then that if we think about like a CIO's workflow, we have to start to ask ourselves, where does an application or a connected device fit into that? Um, and what are the other interactions? And are those interactions that we want to play in? And do we need to consider? When you work at Philips, what, what are your touch points internally? Uh... Yeah, I mean, so especially as we start talking about being a technology company, or, you know, we would say we're a vendor, we're a provider to our customers, we have to start thinking about, well, how are we delivering our technology? And as we are doing, uh, you know, the servitization, really bringing our services or our expertise to bear as a product that we're selling, we have to start to think about how we're delivering that. So we're going from an organization that has salespeople and technical support. You know, if I, if I make it really simple, right, mm -hmm. that's what we have. Um, we're going from those sort of two basic common roles to, well, now we have to start thinking about what does implementing a system look like? Are we going to be part of the implementation team for a customer? Um, we have to start thinking about uh, uh, things like customer success, like how are we letting customers know that they're appropriately using what they have, that they're getting value out of it. Um, you know, if we are providing, you know, like as a service models where, where we have some commitment around like uptime guarantees, those are things on like, how are we reporting on that? How are we checking? So these are all like we would say, or a lot of the things that I talk about is these are all new interactions that we're having with the customer. So then we have to ask ourselves as Phillips, is that a new interaction through people? You know, so do we have the roles? Do we have the capabilities to be able to do that? Um, do we have the systems and tools to do that? Are we actually able to pull data about usage? Are we able to see that in a way that the person, that capability, that role can use it? And then do we have the processes? Like how often is that gonna happen? How does this person in their role know that they're supposed to be checking this data? And then how do they report on that to a customer? So from our side then, we're having to look at, okay, we've added this you know, new touch point as part of this customer journey. How are we designing our people process tools for that? And so which part of the organization is gonna do that? Um, do we need to have our global IT partners uh, change settings, you know, so sometimes mm. I'm getting into what are system requirements for our IT systems? What are product requirements that are going on to the R&D roadmap? Um, other times it's doing field training of like, we have this role, they've maybe existed before, but now we're expanding. So how do I help them understand what they're going to do? So, you know, I've done a lot of like, let's develop a new educational experience. Um, and then, you know, on processes, like there can be a lot of variability there. And so how are we looking at existing processes? Are we saying, yeah, we're going to keep doing that? Are we saying we're going to do a whole new one? Or are we developing something else? 
Um, and, and so I find that, that the hard work is not coming up with the new customer experience, the new customer journey. Most mm-hmm. of the hard work is how do we make the internal shift and address the people process system side that actually allow us to deliver on that. Um, and, and something that we really experience as being a sort of legacy product company is we often butt heads against our own legacy business. Mm. So at Philips, we talk a lot about our perform. You know, that's who makes the money. That's who's bringing and that's who makes sure that we get paychecks. But that's the same thing that we've been doing for the last 50, 75, 100 years. Then we have, have our transform business that's like, okay, we got to get ahead. We've got to start looking at the next thing. That's where we're really getting mm. into our service delivery, service development. And it conflicts. It directly conflicts, even things down to um, sales metrics. What a salesperson is measured on in a traditional product business, it's very different than what a salesperson is measured on in a service business. Well, we're using the same salespeople. So how do we have two different metrics? Or does that actually mean that we have two different sales organizations? And this is just the sales part. We're not even now into the like, oh, and we've signed a contract for the next 10 years. How are we going to, you know, make sure that we're delivering on that. Makes, yeah. How do you identify allies in that? Like if you, if you have a big transformation <laughs> effort that you're like, how do you, who, who do you look for? Um, so I don't, I guess I, 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 this I always struggle with because I think I have always been fortunate in already knowing who the ally was and starting there. Um, I was actually just giving a, a, a little bit of a, of a talk to another service design group on there's, there's kind of three approaches that I take in, let's say, transformation for a loose word of um, one, I always go from a maturity model. So you're never going to take somebody from a level one to a level five. You always have to ladder up. So, you know, I'm always looking for what's the maturity level that somebody's at. Um, I always take an asset-based approach as opposed to a deficit. So what do people already have to work with? How do I build on what they're already doing, what they already know, where they're already successful? Um, and then I take a 10, 20, 70 learning model, you know, 10% formal training, 20% coaching and mentoring, 70% um, on the job experience. And so with those three things, I find that you know, in a group of 10 people, there's at least one person who has some assets that I can build on, is a slightly higher maturity that I can level up to the next. And I guess that kind of ally piece is they're ready for that 70-20-10 model. You know, they want to do the, I'm going to try this out and experience it. D, let's partner so that you can kind of like coach and mentor and be that springboard of things. And and where we need to, we'll fill in with some of that formal learning. Um, So I think for me, I I don't know if it's, there's probably some research out there in anthropology that, you know, in a group of 10 people, there is always going to be one that, you know, I I guess it's your classic bell curve or your classic Mm -hmm. um, diffusion of innovation. You know, there's always going to be an inventor and an innovator in the group. Mm. Um, And so typically I'm, I'm gravitating towards that person because I can use my approaches with them. You know, they have something I can work with. They have something I can build on. They have a mindset of how do I learn through experience and 
they then kind of role model that for the rest of a group. Um, I will say that in a lot of the project programs that I've been in, where we are doing product to service transition, we actually talk a lot about what is the right team to do that work. And I tend to, and I even talk about this with designers, there's, I sort of see design in sort of two camps. There's the, how are you framing versus how are you executing? Mm -hmm. And in transformation, there's a lot that you have to do around how do you frame? How do you, you know, so I know engineers that are great coders. They're not necessarily the ones that are going to get up to a whiteboard, try to work it out, kind of get their hands on the problem, really frame it up. You know, they're more in, tell me the user story that I need to code to. Mm-hmm. So when I'm kind of, when I'm thinking about what's the team that I'm going to work with, I'm working for the framers in that transformation. We've got to get enough framed. We've got to get a space defined. We've got to get a future defined. But then I can go to the executors and say, here's what we need to make happen. When you say framers, and what is it that you specifically contribute for that framer? And who is that framer? Um, so for me, the framer is somebody who can, I would say mental model and tangibly model a system. I think there's a variety of systems. So, you know, we could talk about, uh, you know, a true technical system, you know, what's, what's the architecture, what's the technical architecture. So how can they model, uh, you know, the way information flows, that's a framing challenge, right? Or, um, I think in the marketing space, how do we like frame a, a potential target audience? You know, there's many places we can go. How do we frame those many places and then kind of pick one that we're going to go after? Um, ooh, financial. So I, I'm super, I have worked with some of the most creative financial framers. And I don't say it like, oh, they're going to go hide money, but they're creative in the like, how do we look at the line item costs? and frame where are the places that we can start to move the needle, you know, because particularly in service costs, you know, you start to like, oh man, we've got a huge people chunk here. Like if we could really look at how we get that people chunk slimmed down, or, you know, we spend a lot of hours over here. Is there a way that we could get those hours slimmed down? Or I've had um, really smart financial folks talk about, well, we're not doing value-based pricing. We're doing cost-based pricing. Let's talk about the value. And I'm like, oh, yes, like this is offer, like propositions, like 100%. Like, let's talk about value. And they want to price value. So being able to frame that to me, like that's an exercise in itself versus how do we figure out what is the actual cost model breakdown? That's execution. So um, as I've worked with a lot of these internal ventures, we often see a transition of the team of kind of like early framers And then as the team grows, we start to add the executors and the framers are then kind of taking on a new challenge. Um, So, yeah, so I think that's, you know, just a couple of examples of framers. Um, I think as a service designer, what I tend to bring in the framing conversation is what are, it's almost like the gap analysis on the experience. So being able to Mm. say, if we go from version A to version B, here's what we're going to have to tackle. I maybe don't have answers to that. I maybe don't even have the best ideas around how to do that. But I can tell you, here's what it's going to take to get there. 
And maybe how do we even think about like, what's that first pilot versus maybe like three to five customers versus the 10 versus another market. And so again, it's kind of putting the bounding box on that ecosystem to say, here's the layers that we need to think at. And I'm going to have a start in this layer. So a lot about delineating the system and less about how how do we move thing A to point B. Yeah, and I think, you know, so really kind of in terms of system thinking, absolutely putting the bounding box, absolutely what are the relationships, you know, so a, a system is basically three things. You have your components, you have your relationships, and then you have the purpose of that system. So the purpose is what puts the bounding box. The relationship between the components is is another piece of framing because it's this relation, you know, as you move a component, you change a relationship. So, you, so part of what I feel like I'm particularly strong at is being able to say, if you change this, here's the other things that we have to think about. We maybe don't have to think about them right now, but here's the connections. And, you know, if we're trying to get to result A, here's the things that I think we can move to try to get to that. Um, and that's even, you know, if I go to like some of my, my technical folks, my, my system architects, they're really good at saying, okay, so you want the system to do what? Okay, so if I were to try and make that happen, here's the things that I would look at. They're maybe not going to tell you what the solution is, but they're going to say, yeah, yeah, you know, I think we've really got to look at the data flows into the database on, on, you know, this portion of over here. And then they'll go send somebody to investigate it and they'll get into a little technical mumbo jumbo, you know, they'll do some little proof of concepting and then they'll come back and they'll say, okay, so we tried this out. Here's what we saw. Based off of that, I think we might want to do this next. And, and so I think it's the, it's also part of that systems piece is being able to mental model and map the relationships so that you can also say, well, is the system behaving as we expected when we start to make those changes? And, and that's something that I don't necessarily see executors as attuned to. You know, they're really good at, I did the thing, which is super important. They're less tuned into, when I did this thing, this other thing happened. Hmm. And that's, I think the framers are really good at saying, okay, we have this new data point, or, you know, we have this new result. What does that mean for that system that we originally constructed and we originally framed up? How does that system change? How does our thinking about what comes next change? How, uh, just because you bring it up, system and business architects, uh, what's your relationship to those guys? Because I've found that I have more in common with those guys than I ever thought. Oh, well, so my... This is not a new thing for me. This is actually way back when I was doing custom design and fabrication. Um, any role, any discipline can have creative problem solvers. It just happens that as a designer, I'm a trained creative problem solver. I have spent my entire career developing my creative problem solving muscle and executing on that. Many, many system architects business architects are creative problem solvers. They're just doing it in a different space. So that's where I go back to, you know, my financial modelers. Like I have met some of the most creative, like when people talk about like, oh, I always, I always have issues with, um, you know, our, our, um, 
are controllers. I'm like, really? Because I have met some of the most interesting and thoughtful controllers. But it's because I've worked with the creative problem solvers. Mm. So I think where I find commonality and, and probably speaks a lot to the teams that I gravitate towards working with are creative problem solvers. Um, and, and that's where, you know, I've met service marketing folks that I'm like, oh, you're service. You should totally get this. No, like they don't <laughs> because they're executors. And I'm right. looking for that. Like, okay, we've got to think about services in a different way. And we're not just marketing to one audience. You know, we're thinking about a journey. And so this isn't just like marketing communications. There's also like customer experience management in this. And they're just not oriented to that. Mm. So I think... Like I talk a lot about, I, I feel like I'm a multilinguist because I speak marketing, I speak financials, I speak engineering, but I think it's more, I speak creative problem solving. And so I can hear what people are trying to articulate as the problem and how they're trying to solve it. That is the thing that I really gravitate towards. Okay. If, if we talk a little bit about healthcare, the, the, the space of healthcare, what, what are the like, big trends that you think will affect your space? Um, boy, that's tough, mostly because there's lots of reports out there about that. And so I have to think about um, right. what in those reports that I see. I mean, so in many ways, what's in healthcare is not so different from what's other industries. I find that it's most of the time just moving slower. Um, you know, in healthcare, the, the big challenge is you are, in fact, talking about people's health. So... <laughs> Um, changing quickly is something that's pretty nerve wracking. Cause like, is, do you, maybe it's going to positively affect things or maybe it's going to make things worse. And like, are you really willing to take that risk that you're going to make things worse? Right. So, so I find that healthcare for the most part just moves slower, but tends to follow the same trends. So, you know, we still see digitization, as a pretty important thing. You know, there are lots of um, countries that have not digitized their healthcare. And so that will continue to change depending on where you are kind of in your digitization journey. Then you're starting to get into, well, you know, you've gotten all of the data, you've connected all the data, but now there's just a ton of data. And so what do you, how do you start to frame that data and make it useful and bring it into workflows, you know, so that you have some of this decision support with data. And, and um, similarly, you know, it's not just data. It's like, can you move data from one system to another system? So, you know, I had my blood pressure taken at one clinic. Can I see that blood pressure at another clinic when I'm out of town? So we still are feeling that kind of digitization and ecosystem integration piece. Um, and, and there really is a spectrum of maturity. Some countries, some healthcare systems are further along in that. Um, similarly, or I guess I wouldn't say similarly, but a trend that's been out there for a while and is continuing is increasingly we're trying to move healthcare to prevention and healthy living so that we have fewer kind of chronic disease management, you have fewer acute care episodes. Um, ultimately, those are the really expensive things. And so it really is like, it's cheaper to keep people healthy. <laughs> um, and, and so I think the, quite frankly, the, the big thing that is ultimately driving change in healthcare is costs. 
So mm-hmm. you know, people are costly. We're having a harder time getting people into healthcare. It's a painful profession to be in where the reward, uh, you know, the intrinsic reward of I'm helping people does not um, any longer outweigh the just gnarliness of being in healthcare. Um, and, you know, there's really sort of high margin healthcare areas that increasingly people are moving into. And so that means there's not as much in these like low margin, but like critical care spaces. Mm. So the big thing is the margin pressures in healthcare. Um, and healthcare is really starting to have to run like a business. So you see a lot of things around standardization, um, you know, uh, consolidation, um, you know, increasing partnership approaches. And, and so there, again, it's not that it's so different from other industries. We're just moving into the how do we operate as a, or healthcare is moving into how does it operate as a higher functioning business? Hmm. Um, so then when you look at a health technology provider or, or vendor like Philips, we're having to think about, well, how are we helping healthcare be a better business? Um, and so similarly, you know, we're feeling the same changes of how do we go from a conglomerate to an operating company? You know, so how do we make sure that, you know, what we're doing in Canada also looks the same as what we're doing in New Zealand, because we can't afford either to have kind of all of these one-offs. Um, how are we helping businesses of healthcare to standardize? So instead of giving them whatever they want, we're going to start showing up with, well, here's the limited options, because that's going to help you standardize. Um, really shifting away from features and functionality to more of that um, workflow and operational services kind of mindset. Um, so I think, yeah, really kind of this, yes, healthcare is a service and it has to operate as a business. So how do all those players really participate in the ecosystem of healthcare as a business? Um, if you would estimate how much of like how much of healthcare is actually automated, like uh, if you would give a percentage, five uh, percent. And in ten years, how do you think it will look by then? Seven percent. You think it's that slow? All right, cool. I do. I mean, even if you look at so in the U.S. introductions of EMRs, electronic medical records, um, ten years just to meet the standards of use set by uh, the United States um, CMS, which is essentially our, uh, our, our nationalized healthcare, 10 years. Only in the last year did they update their standards of use to include interoperability. 10 years later, they've updated their standards. So it's going to be another 10 years before all of the providers in the electronic medical record space have met have met the integration standards, and that's just on healthcare data. That's just on. I went to the hospital and somebody took some information about me. So, based on this, we can expect a lot of challenges, but also a lot of exciting developments within the healthcare space. Keep an ear out for more discussions with Deceiver as we progress this season. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. 
This has been Designing the Robot Revolution with me, Jacob Magno. If you want to support this podcast, please tell a friend about it. All music in this episode was created by Vendela. Producer for this episode was David Griffith-Jones. Have a great day.